Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, coming out in May 2010. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show is all about data privacy, because this month, January, is Data Privacy Month, and as a matter of fact... This week is Data Privacy Week, so we're going to talk to an expert on data privacy. Let me tell you a little bit about Joseph Campana, Ph.D. He is a privacy and identity theft consultant and expert, and he's appeared on radio, TV, and various publications. He writes regularly about identity theft, privacy, and information security topics to small businesses as a featured columnist for Examiner.com. Dr. Campana earned a business and government certified information privacy professional designation from the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which I did too. So we are brother and sister like that. And he is a certified identity theft risk management specialist and licensed special investigator. Joe Campana serves on several continuing professional education faculties, including the Wisconsin Bar Association, where he taught privacy and information security risk management and compliance. Joe Campana also authored several white papers, including Identity Theft, The Business Time Bomb, Data Breach Risk Factors, 2005 through 2008, A Resource Guide, and he recently wrote a new book, which I have sitting right here in front of me called Privacy Makeover, The Essential Guide to Best Practices. So this is perfect for us to talk about this week because we're looking at best practices for data protection and privacy protection. And you can learn much more about Joe at his great website at jcampana.com. That's J-C-O-M-P-A-N-A dot com. And he's coming to us all the way from Madison, Wisconsin, which was actually where I lived for four years as an undergrad at beautiful University of Wisconsin in Madison. Thank you so much for joining us from your wonderful state. Well, thank you for having me, Mari, and particularly during the special week of Data Privacy Week. Yes, and people may not even know what data privacy is. Why don't you explain to them what do we mean by data privacy? Well, what we mean is protecting 
sensitive information, and that information can be uh, personal information as well as business information. And I, I think during the next hour, we'll be talking about it quite a bit. Well, Joe, you know, your, your book is entitled Privacy Makeover, The Essential Guide to Best Practices. So what exactly did you mean by privacy makeover? Well, our rapidly changing world requires that both businesses and consumers rethink how personally identifiable information and business information are handled at home and especially in the workplace. And while, while some thought retooling is this, uh, a necessity of this maturing information age that we're in, uh, it's also necessary because of other factors such as identity theft, corporate espionage, and just general business fraud. There's a need to elevate becoming privacy-friendly in America to the same level as being environmentally friendly or being green. Yes. And consumers must really be aware of safeguarding their own personally identifiable information. For example, their Social Security numbers, their financial account information. And there's four areas where this transformation is needed for consumers. One, they just generally have to be careful not to trash their own identity. Uh, they have to be alert and concerned about the information that they share with other organizations, such as businesses. And they really need to get involved by taking some political action to affect the privacy makeover. And finally, they need to understand the prevention steps and the warning signs of identity theft. Now, businesses and other organizations must also protect sensitive information that customers and employees entrust to them. They need to be careful with their own sensitive business information, too. And the three immediate steps that small organizations can undertake to affect a privacy transformation or privacy makeover in America are, number one, be aware and be compliant with applicable privacy and information security laws and industry regulations. Number two, implement a privacy and information security best practices program. And three, use privacy and security to differentiate their organization in the mind of the customers. Just as more and more consumers are choosing to do business with environmentally friendly and green businesses, more and more are favoring to do business with those that are privacy friendly. I'm so glad that you brought that up because we do have a lot of people driving by, even though we're on the campus of the University of California in Irvine, Irvine and Newport Beach. This is a, you know, lots of small and medium businesses here. We even have a little mini Silicon Valley nearby. So yes, there are lots of businesses here. And I think they need, especially when we're talking about this data privacy week and data privacy month and data privacy day, which is coming up January 28th. When we're thinking about that, we have to think about the businesses that that hold our sensitive information. You know, here in Orange County, Joe, I work a lot with the Orange County DA. Many years ago, I was in the DA's office working there. And one of the top prosecutors for the last 30 years on identity theft told me that 60 to 70 percent at least of the identity thieves that he prosecutes really come from inside businesses. And that tells you that if identity theft is coming from inside businesses, that's who needs to take some care for us, right? That's right. And, uh, you know, that's totally consistent with, uh, with a number uh, that I've come up with also that I read in the report several years ago that actually got me so interested in doing what I do and helping small businesses that it is about 70%. Yes, yes. And I also get a kick out of uh, Madison, Wisconsin, because Wisconsin is the second state 
to have an Office of Privacy Protection. In California, we started one, oh God, about seven or eight years ago, and I, I'm still on their advisory board. And I remember when Wisconsin passed the law to set up an Office of Privacy Protection, our chief, Joan McNabb, flew out to Madison and helped them establish the Office of Privacy. So our two states really are leaders in privacy protection. So, you know, hopefully other states will follow, but it's it's a great place to be in a state that does really protect privacy. So let's talk about why did you end up writing this book? Well, you know, most privacy and information security professionals cut their teeth at the large multinationals and not in small organizations. And these large organizations have been pretty good at privacy best practices, but really few of the millions of small organizations in America give privacy and information security best practices much consideration at all. Um, I have a small business and small organization background. When I was associated with large organizations, my responsibilities were focused on small operational units. And what I learned was that large organization solutions and approaches to risk management and regulatory compliance are not practical in small, resource-limited workplaces. Taking that traditional large company approach to privacy and information security compliance into the small business workplace is not practical because small businesses have neither the budget nor the human capital to implement a big company solution. So the purpose of the book is to bring privacy and information security best practices from Wall Street to Main Street, as I like to say. Uh, The book presents a small business solution that is both manageable and affordable. In a nutshell, the small business solution is really to create a culture of general privacy and information security through best practices instead of trying to comply individually with numerous different laws and regulations. And, you know, you're so right, Joe, because most companies, small and even some medium and many medium-sized companies, really can't afford to have a compliance officer, a privacy officer, or a general counsel. They have to either outsource this or not know about it, and a lot of them get into trouble, and that's when I end up doing my expert witness testimony on these kinds of cases. And so it's so important that they understand what to do because, Even a small business, let's say even a sole proprietor who has a total business online, let's say, they still gather sensitive data. They they may uh, get things like uh, credit card numbers. They may even, depending on the circumstances, uh, get a social security number. And here they have all this sensitive data, and they could have a security breach very easily. Yeah, and they, a lot of them work out of their home. Right. They have children and teenagers that are coming in and out of their home and their offices, and they leave this information setting around, and anybody could pick up. And as you say, there's Social Security numbers and account information uh, in many of those cases. Exactly. So so it's actually, and, and, and then also we know that, what is it, 80 to 90% of all businesses in this country are small to medium businesses? You know, we think of all the big GM and GE and all that stuff, but, but basically when you look at small business is really what, what is the heart of this country. That's right, and there's, there's over 20 million of them. And, right, and they just, I know lots of times as an attorney, I help small businesses, but they can't afford to have in-house counsel. They just can't afford it, and they won't even know about compliance, yet a lot of these little companies get 
you know, get sued. I, I have actually had to be an expert witness recently on a lot of those cases in which these companies had uh, printed the expiration date on credit card receipts. So little beauty salons were getting sued and, you know, little tiny companies that that you would never think would be sued by, you know, and class actions were being sued. So it can happen to you. You have to become compliant. And that's why I thought it was real helpful that your privacy makeover gives the, as you call it, the essential guide to best practices. You really need to have something that can help these small businesses. So tell us, what are some of the key issues that small and medium-sized businesses, um, what should they be concerned about if they don't have a privacy officer to tell them? Well, they should have a privacy officer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's the immediate goal that they should take, and here's, here's why. Because a prerequisite for best practices is that every organization, large or small, has someone who is formally responsible for privacy and information security. And in the smallest businesses, let's say it's just one person, then the privacy officer uh, is going to be the owner, the proprietor. Yeah, he has and to wear that hat or she has to wear that hat too. That's right. And, uh, you know, once, once you have that person, uh, then they have to make a commitment to uh, take reasonable and appropriate steps to secure the information that the customers, and, of course, if they have any employees, that the employees have entrusted with that organization. And if they don't do that, then the organization is going to be open to rather significant risks and liabilities should they have an identity theft incident or they have a privacy or information security breach. Right. And when we talk about security breach, we talk about the fact, and, and at least let me kind of clarify for those people listening what, what the state of California law is, which many states have pretty much copied it. We don't have an actual federal security breach law per se, but we do have almost every state has somewhat of a security breach law. And what the California law says is if you have a um, an unauthorized person acquire sensitive data okay, that was once computerized, it may not can be computerized now, in other words, it may be a printout, but if it was once computerized and you have lost it or it's been acquired by this unauthorized person, then you have a duty to notify that unauthorized persons or persons expediently, okay? And if the only way that you can get out of having to notify is if that information was made unreadable, for example, if it's computerized, if it was encrypted. And so just think about all the small businesses that don't encrypt sensitive data, that keep it on their computer. And what if they're hacked into? What if there is spyware on their computer? What if some kids take it off, like you were saying, if they have a home business and their kids take it off their computer and use it or sell it? then you have a security breach. And that's exactly what we're talking about in Data Privacy and Data Privacy Week, Data Privacy Month, and Data Privacy Day on January 28th. So, and, you know, uh, encryption is so simple, but it's such a scary term to most people who don't know what it is. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I for example, won't send any letters to my clients that are not encrypted. And I have taught my clients how to decrypt. It's very simple. And then they don't necessarily know how to send it back to me, but I have to teach them. I have my assistant teach them how to encrypt. I tell people, do not send me anything 
that is not encrypted and at least password protected so that I can make sure that no one sees your sensitive data. And I do that with law firms and I do that with my own clients because I am so concerned about that. So you need to help you, you know, you as a business owner, meaning not you, Joe, because I know you know how to do this, but you who are listening as a business owner or even you students who are going to be going out into the business world and those of you who are even sending things to friends, you need to use encryption and you need to be able to protect the data, especially your emails, because most people don't even do that. Well, and it's interesting that you bring that example up because I have received several emails with attachments. They were intended for somebody else from law firms that has this confidential uh, information of their clients on. I've also received yes. faxes. For example, a mortgage document that was faxed from a bank just accidentally faxed to the wrong number. And so that's a financial disclosure, and it's a breach of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act doing that. And just so, imagine on any kind of a mortgage uh, document, especially like a loan application, it's going to have everything about that person besides their social security number or their TIN number. They're going to have all of their account numbers on there too. Everything. Yeah. And I, I think people need to have a privacy consciousness. And and that's what I think is so great about your book, Joe, is that in Privacy Makeover, you're, you're helping small businesses to understand that they need to have a privacy consciousness. That's right. Yep. I think that's the key. So what is your experience, you know, me with all these years dealing with identity theft, what, what is your experience in dealing with identity theft? Well, my focus in uh, early, earlier years was on prevention and detection through consumer education. I was actually involved in education and marketing of, uh, <clears throat> of consumer identity theft protection products. Now, occasionally I've helped victims resolve their situations. However, you know, Mari, there are a number of private, public, and not-for-profit organizations that specialize in helping victims. You mentioned uh, two of them, the one in California and the Office of Privacy Protection here in Wisconsin. Uh, what I found is that many consumers and businesses really don't think that identity theft is going to happen to them. And some tend to hide behind these myths which are based on misunderstandings about what identity theft is. For example, very often I hear people say, I don't have any credit cards, or I only use one credit card, therefore no one can steal my identity. Right. <laughs> and they just don't get it, do they? Right. And, you know, many of these illusions are just based on a common misunderstanding that identity theft is only credit card fraud or bank fraud. Right. And one doesn't have to have good credit to become a victim of identity theft. Right. All a victim needs to have is just a name and a social security number. They don't have to be of a certain age. In fact, they don't even have to be alive. Children and the deceased are frequent targets of identity thieves. Right. You know, re recently, I was involved in a public hearing here in, uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, it was a situation where the county had been placing federal tax liens and other public records online for anybody to access. And the county was generating about a quarter million dollars annually selling these public records, many of which displayed Social Security numbers. And selling them to anybody, right? And to anybody. You know, and they didn't even have to be a U.S. citizen. You could be in a cave in Afghanistan, as I, <laughs> as I tried to explain to them. All they needed was an Internet connection and a credit card. It could be a stolen credit card or one that was obtained through identity theft, and you pay your $5.95, and you can search the records. And you, uh. get, 
you can just harvest Social Security numbers. And the custodian of records uh, really expressed a lot of confusion over this as to why anybody would want to steal a Social Security number from a person (laughs) who had a federal tax lien against them. Um, Goodness gracious. So you did some education, huh? Uh, we did, and uh, let me tell you, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, but it illustrates, you know, a common situation that I uh, see very often in government and not-for-profit organizations, where the people in charge of records don't really understand what identity theft is. They don't understand that that name and social security number can be used to get employment, to get utilities, to get housing, to get various government benefits, to get insurance, to get medical coverage, and so on and so forth. Criminal, to commit criminal acts, yeah. That's right. Well, it's interesting because we do have, you know, the the federal rules of procedure for federal court as well as California state court and probably most many other courts that I've been involved in. Um, they have rules that you, you cannot put the Social Security number unredacted um, on in, in the and file it with the court. You, you really can't do that anymore, which, thank goodness, it took us a long time. But um, I have actually been an expert on cases in which the lawyers have been sued for violations of the federal rules and also for negligence in putting up, like you said, loan documents as attachments <laughs> on uh, and court filings. So, um, you know, I think people are becoming more aware and it's important that they hear what you have to say because these kinds of things really do happen. And it's the Social Security number, as you know, and as most people probably who've listened to the show know that it is the key to the kingdom of identity theft for any kind of identity theft, which is not just necessarily credit card fraud. In fact, credit card fraud is the least of your worries. If somebody uses your credit card and you get a statement with a lots of credit that has been fraudulently used, that's not a big deal. You are covered by federal law. You just call up. That's not even really identity theft. We're talking about the kind of identity theft where somebody literally tries to clone you by using your name and your social security number and other identifying information if they have it to create new accounts to get like like Joe was saying to get health care to file bankruptcy to do anything that you can do and that's what's so unfortunate so Sometimes people don't realize that a business itself can become a victim of identity theft. Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, businesses can become victims of identity theft and actually in multiple different ways. So let me just cover a couple of those. Uh, You know, first of all, let's realize that there's generally three parties to identity theft. The first, of course, is the thief or the person that's using the fraudulent identification. Then you have the consumer victim. You can also have a business victim because a federal tax ID number can be used in much the same way as a Social Security number. But you always have a third victim. And that third victim is the business or the other organization in which the thief presents the fraudulent identification to, to get services or to get employment or to get, get, get whatever. And we seldom hear about that victim. It's the business. And, you know, the cost to businesses and consumers is tremendous. It's been estimated to be $60 billion annually in the U.S., and about a year ago it was said that worldwide the losses topped $1 trillion, a number that we've become very familiar with over the last year. In addition, you know, as I said, businesses can become victimized just like consumers can. 
you know, an identity theft can misrepresent themselves as the business. They can make fraudulent purchases or carry out other fraudulent transactions in the name of the business. And as I said, they use the federal tax ID number just like a consumer's social security number. And of course, we see all those phishing websites, you know, where someone's put up a website pretending or sends out emails pretending to be your bank or the FDIC or someone else. Yeah, so it's all those kinds. I have to tell you something funny. What happened to me last week, which kind of shocked me, one of my assistants answered the phone and it was um, the Los Angeles Times. And they said, we want to know if you want us to combine your two subscriptions. And, you know, of course, my assistant said, gee, I didn't know you had two subscriptions. And I said, I don't. And so I called. Of course, I ended up talking to somebody in the Philippines. And I said, explain to me what my two subscriptions are. I have only one. And this is the one from my office. They said, oh, no, you have another one in suite 215 in the same building. I said, I'm in suite 300. I only have one subscription to the LA Times. So apparently someone was using my identity to try and get another subscription to the LA Times in another office, which I thought that was really strange, really strange, you know, but you never know. I've already been a victim of identity theft. A woman, you know, back in 1996, assumed my identity as an attorney and was parading as an attorney and was giving out business cards with my name, you know, in another county. And so, you know, it can happen to you even if you're a sole practitioner, even if you're a sole proprietor, even if you're a one-person business. Somebody could pretend to be Joe Campana and send out your, you know, information and make up, a, a you know, a business cards with your name. That's why, by the way, my business cards have my picture on it, and I'm not even a realtor. So just thought I'd tell people it's a good idea to put your picture on your business cards because my imposter actually stole a bunch of my business cards and just started passing them out. And it's so easy to impersonate a business these days with desktop publishing. Yes. Uh, you can, uh, I mean, you can forge checks, you can forge letterhead, purchase orders very, very easily. Exactly, exactly. So e- those of you who are listening who own a business, you need to think about how could your business be vulnerable. And maybe you should do some Google searches for your business. I know for me, for example, I do Google searches of my name. I sign up for an alert with my name. So you put your name, you go to Google, and then you go up in the left-hand corner and you look at Google alerts, and then you can put your name any way it's spelled, whether it's uh, Joseph Campana or Joe Campana or Joseph Campana PhD or anything you want. Put that in quotation marks and ask that you be sent. So I get anytime something goes on the Internet with my name or my business, I get an alert from Google and I can look and see what that's all about. So that's one way to start looking for it because it's just so easy to happen. Now that call that you got from the LA Times, you know, 20 years ago, most people would call it a mistake. And what uh, businesses should know and consumers should know, when that happens today, don't take it as a mistake. Take it as a clue. Right. <laughs> a clue that you might be a victim of identity theft and you want to ask the right questions. Right. I know because my assistant, Alyssa, said to me, well, my, you know, here, here it is. I don't, I don't know what this is all about. I don't think it's anything. And then, of course, I freaked out, of course. You know, just anytime I see something like that, I'm very highly sensitive to it. We are speaking with Joe or Joseph Campana, Ph.D., who is the author of Privacy Makeover, 
the Essential Guide to Best Practices, and he's talking to us all the way from beautiful but cold Madison, Wisconsin. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host, and I'm having a good time talking with a fellow certified information privacy professional. It's an an honor to talk to you, too, also being a part of that organization. Yeah. So, Joe, um, what's the most important advice that you want to give to, well, let's let's start out with individuals first and then to businesses. What's the most important advice you want to give individuals about protecting themselves from identity theft? Because we know we can't really prevent it if it's meant to happen. If somebody wants to get our identity, they can do it. But what are some... What's the most important advice as to protecting yourself? Well, as you know, you and I could discuss this for an entire hour. Oh, probably Uh, many more, probably days. That's right. Uh, But just a couple of points. Consumers really have to protect their Social Security number and limit what they carry in their wallet or purse. They should really minimize the number of credit cards they carry, ideally to one, and ideally not to even carry a a debit card. Um, And they should never carry anything that contains their Social Security number on it, such as a medical identification card, a Medicare card, or a Social Security card. And in fact, if they have a medical identification card which still shows their Social Security number, they should turn that into their health care organization and ask them to uh, give them another one with... uh, some other nebulous number on it that, that's not their Social Security number. Yeah, and another thing that they can do, and, and this is something that people say, well, gee, if they have their Medicare card or their Medicaid card, which still is using the social, which hopefully will change soon, but what they can do is make a copy of the card and then black out, meaning they can redact out the numbers, except for maybe leaving the last four numbers, which is, as long as they don't have all of the numbers, at least that's helpful. And so that if they are in an accident or something, they will they will have that card and they can show it. And on the military card now, thirty years ago the military card was a was a random number, but in the last thirty years it's become the social security number, which is scary. Like when our, my grandson was in the Air Force and he's wearing his, you know, thing around his neck, his dog tag has a social security number. That's hopefully going to change, but it will cost a fortune, so it's not going to happen right away. But even the military card for, you know, the the children and for the spouse of the military person has the social security number. So again, I, you know, they can't get on base without it. So that that's kind of a, a problem. But if you can, for most of these cards, at least if you make a copy and redact out the all but the last four numbers, you know, it, it may help you a little bit. So. And, and that's a very good solution. But, you know, in most cases, people don't need to be carrying their Medicare card because they're, they're not going to be denied uh, health care if they got into an accident. Uh, they're not, the ambulance isn't going to leave them on the side of the street. Now, because of some changes in laws, medical offices may require that as a form of identification if they're going to a health care institution for the first time or they're making changes, but generally you don't need to carry it around on a daily basis. If you know you're going to the doctor and you need to take your your Medicare card with you, you can do that. And we all know what our number is on our Medicare right, cards. Right. I don't have one yet, but I, I, it's just your Social Security number. And because of California law, there is no health care uh, insurance company that uses your SSN as your ID because, oh, 
gee, I think it was back in 2003, 2004, we passed a law that the health carrier could not use the SSN as your, uh, I, you know, as your individual ID number. And so Blue Cross, Blue Shield, all of them had to change. And so when they had to change it for California, they basically changed it for everybody. So now when I go in, like I I had to go to the doctor the other day for a checkup, and they, of course, as usual, asked for my SSN. And I said, not necessary, because my Blue Shield is not the Social Security number. So they didn't, you know, they didn't fight with me. So if you go to a doctor and you have a health insurance that is not your SSN, then just tell them why do they need it. They don't need it. And that's a very good point. You know, um, a lot of times businesses ask for information that's not necessary. And that would be another tip that I would give to, to businesses is, you know, do a data inventory. Are you asking for information you don't need to have? Right. Uh, Mary, I, I had to deal with a, a law firm a few years ago to write me a letter to an adverse party. And they, they wanted in the application to this law firm my background information. And they asked for the Social Security number. And I said, what do you need a Social Security number for? Right. All I'm asking you to do is to write a letter. Yep. <laughs> and it's not, a, you know, it's not a workers' compensation case or anything where yeah, they need or- a Social Security number. And so I think businesses just sometimes do it out of habit. And collecting information like that that you don't need just increases your risk a data breach. Exactly, because then you have it sitting in some file and then somebody could get it. So you're absolutely right. What about for businesses? What You know what? I want to go back, though, because one of the things that you said I wanted to really emphasize, it's so important when you said not to use a debit card. I, I my, People who listen to my show all the time have, have probably heard this a million times, but I would never have a debit card. A debit card is really an electronic check. And that number on your debit card can be used, even though, you know, when you say, oh, well, you use it as a credit card, you think you're covered by the Fair Credit Billing Act. You are not. It is the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, which doesn't even cover you unless you've used the PIN. And your, uh, your debit card can be used online by phone or by fax without a PIN. So I would never, ever use it. You're better off using a credit card. And the only other thing I wanted to say about credit card about Actually, I have to tell you that I believe in credit cards. And in fact, if you have several credit cards and you only use the, you know, uh, let's say you have a $2,000 limit and you never go above $500 on that, all right, your credit score will soar. So believe it or not, Evan Hendricks, who wrote uh, credit scores and credit reports, and he's a good friend of mine. He is an expert on credit scores, and you are actually better off having more credit cards and just using it a little bit on each one. It soars your credit score. And right now, it's so hard to get credit because of the economy that if you can get credit cards, it's, you're almost better off having several. I tell my clients they should have at least three And even five is okay, as long as you, number one, are real careful with your credit cards. Number two, you read your statements all the time. And if you see anything that you don't recognize, call the company first uh, that, um, that made the charge and see if you can figure out what it is. And if you can't, immediately dispute it and you have, you know, 60 days to dispute it and you're never going to be held responsible for any fraud on your credit cards. 
So I just have to tell you that at least for credit scores, I really think it's important to have several credit cards, especially if one is fraudulent and then you don't have a credit card, you can't rent a car. So I have a little bit of a different feeling about credit cards. I really feel much safer. In fact, I use credit cards all the time more than ever. I I don't carry checks because as you said before, Joe, checks can be replicated when you go to Office Depot or Office Max and you make up your checks. I have many, many victims who are victims of check fraud because the bank doesn't look at the check. They just look, they just run the bottom of the check through a reader and they don't even look at it, whether it's your name or anybody's name. They just look at the account number and the routing number and they take the money out. So anyway, I just want to kind of share that is that it's another perspective of why I think you should have at least three credit cards, regular credit cards, not debit cards, never a debit card, get a regular ATM card that you can use anywhere in the world to take out money or put money in. Well, and I actually, I agree with you. And I have several credit cards. I use one for personal, one for business, one for the Internet. Right. And the issue is, how many should you carry with you? And I'll just tell you a real quick story. I did a presentation down in Dallas a year ago to a corporation to uh, about 150, 200 of their employees. And I had a little contest. And I asked, how many people here have more than five credit cards with them? And half the room raised their hand. I said, okay, well, how about who has more than 10? And about the same number of people raised their hand. Right. And we got all the way over to how many have more than 25 credit cards with them. Oh, my and goodness. there were three people in the room that had on them, and they came up because I gave them a, a book that was the prize if they had more than 25 credit cards. And I was just astounded yeah. that anybody would carry that many credit cards with them at one time because if that portfolio got lost or stolen, right. How are they going to account for that very quickly? It only takes minutes before the thief will use those. And we had, I had a couple of incidences about a year ago where two women went from Madison to Chicago to go see a couple of shows on the weekend. And these were two separate incidences. And each of them had their purse or the wallet out of their purse stolen. And they both reported to me that they were victims of identity theft before they even discovered that their purse was stolen or their wallet was stolen out of their purse. Right. And These guys go immediately and they'll go and they'll test it like in a, a gas station or something. And if it's good, they'll go everywhere. And, and that's true. Right. Right. Macy's is good, too. The good news. I mean, uh, yes, it's horrible. And yes, it's aggravating. But the good news is if it's just a credit card. OK. And it isn't using their social and they get they can immediately call and they have 60 days to dispute it and they're never going to be held responsible and even though the fair credit billing act says that that you're not going to be responsible for anything more than the first $50 i can honestly tell you they're not even going to charge you the first $50 they just don't do it and that's right. and that's you know visa mastercard that's just good faith on their part but um yeah you don't need to carry 25 but it's not a bad idea especially if you're going to travel out of the country I, I had another friend of mine who's an attorney who went out of the country and he was trying to use his visa on um the uh the tollway in Spain and for he didn't call his company before he left so they they wouldn't let him do it you know and luckily luckily he had a, a you know a mastercard and the mastercard let him use it so it's kind of important, especially when you're traveling, to have a few, at least two or three with you, because also if there's fraud, fraud on one 
or there's any problem with one, then you can use another one if you need it. And, and it's a good backup. But carrying 25, obviously, is crazy. And I don't know why you would need 25. That could be a real problem if you've got so many. But, you know, if you have five or six or even seven, it's okay. And like I said, if you use each credit card a little bit, you've got to use it, but you don't have to use it a lot. If you use one for groceries and one for gas or something like that, your credit score will improve. And if you're trying to buy something or like a house or something right now, you really need a very high credit score in, in order to get a loan these days. So it's just, you know, food for thought, but only a credit card, not a debit card. So let's switch gears a little bit. And again, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host, and we are speaking with Joseph Campana, who is the author of Privacy Makeover, The Essential Guide to Best Practices. So what, um, tell us, what is the relationship between identity theft, privacy, and information security? Some my audience understands. Well, uh, let's start with an information security breach, information security. This is when personally identifiable information or personal health information and even business identifiable information is lost, stolen, or inappropriately accessed or disposed of. Now, you mentioned this earlier. If the information was electronic and it was encrypted, well, then there's little to no risk that anything's going to happen to that information. Except, except the only thing we have to say, and I know you know this too, is if the person who acquired it actually has the key to decrypt. So in other words, if you have a dirty insider, a dirty employee who is in the IT department and it's acquired and then he's got the key to decrypt it, that's the only time there's a problem. And that's, and that's an important asset because a lot of data breaches are due to insiders breaching the data. Right. Now, if the information was unencrypted or it's on paper, uh, then there's going to be risks of privacy violations and identity theft. And a privacy breach occurs when that compromised information is used for marketing, solicitation, profiling. It can be used for discrimination, hate crimes, harassment, blackmail, discrim- um, defamation of character, or just a general you know, unauthorized disclosure of private information, a privacy violation. So there's right. a lot of different ways a privacy breach can occur. And, and you know, we should, you know, when you're talking about that, just so my audience really understands, like, for example, when Farrah Fawcett was in the hospital and she was dying and the information was leaked about her health and her health records were released, that's what he's talking about. It wasn't identity theft, but it was terribly, um, a terrible breach of her medical information. Or when, um, you know, when Hillary when her information was breached when she was running for president or when Barack Obama's information was breached with the passport office. Those are the kinds of things that I think you're talking about besides identity theft, right? That's right. And we had John McCain and Barack Obama. Their information was accessed by insiders at the State Department, so they got to see their information on their passports. That was a privacy breach. And, in fact, my recollection is the people involved were terminated from the State Department for doing that, and others were disciplined. And then you had Barack Obama's uh, telephone records 
were accessed also. And, and again, the, the people were terminated. And it's important that you have disciplinary action if you're an organization when somebody violates your privacy program because you have to you have to be able to prove in order to avoid liability that you're taking your program seriously and you are taking corrective action if there are violations of your privacy and information security programs. So those are those are good examples. I'm glad you brought those up. Well just because I know you and I know this and I'm always thinking that my audience may not know what we're talking about in terms of a privacy breach other than identity theft. They they don't always understand how that could arise. Could you also tell my audience about some of the laws that affect the businesses with regard to privacy and information security? Sure. And, you know, maybe what I could do is just start and say something about what information security is. Because okay. Because it's, it's commonly misunderstood to mean computer security or information system security. And I think we've kind of been alluding to this through our discussion but I want to be, you know, explicit because it really seems to be a confusing point. You know, information security means protecting sensitive information from unauthorized access, use, disclosure, disruption, modification, or destruction. And it, it can include photographic information, printed information, and other forms of information. Uh, it could be the spoken word. Yeah, it could be uh, recorded information. Recorded information. And you gave a very good example of the disclosure of Farrah Fawcett's uh, information, which would be a violation under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, which is affectionately called HIPAA. Right. And, you know, HIPAA requires that these health-related organizations protect personal health information and patient privacy. So that's, that is one such, uh, one such law that's out there. Uh, another one... Uh, is the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. Now, here we go. We're already talking about two different laws. And, and, and another thing I'd like to say here is the United States uh, has a system in place where we protect different types of information uh, among different industry sectors instead of, in general, just protecting uh, all types of information. And, and, and like the European Union has a much more uh, comprehensive privacy approach. That's right. And unfortunately, with this, with this patchwork of laws, it, it results in a legal and compliance complexity, which makes it difficult for businesses to manage if you, if you have to comply with every little law. Yes. And it also creates holes and inconsistencies as to who is supposed to protect what. So this Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which is also known as the Financial Modernization Act of 1999, the intention of that law is to protect consumer financial information and privacy. And it applies to financial institutions. However, financial institutions are very, very broadly defined. And it also applies to any vendor of those institutions that also handle that financial information. Now, here's a whole other inconsistency in this law, and I... Uh, you and I talked about it a little bit earlier, it doesn't include county governments that record the financial documents as public records. So just as an example, let's say that a bank publicly discloses somebody's mortgage document. They leave it on the desk so that other clients who walk in can see that mortgage document. Now, we, we've got a privacy breach there because that document can be viewed by other people and they can see that Joe Campana is a client of the ABC Bank. Uh, 
that violation in the banking industry can be up to a million dollars fine, and it can also include up to 10 years imprisonment of the executives of the bank. Now, it's interesting because the bank then sends that mortgage document to the local county to be recorded, and then many counties take these mortgage documents, they image them, they put them up on their websites for anybody to access. So you have an inconsistency there where the counties aren't held responsible. And I'm, by the way, let me mention, it doesn't matter what, whether that mortgage document has a Social Security number on it or not. It's just the mere disclosure. Now, fortunately, California has recently outlawed the practice of having Social Security numbers visible on such documents. They have to redact that information. Right. And they actually have to go back and uh, redact it on all historical documents if they're going to make it freely available to everybody. And so, I should say one other thing about California. Our California security breach law applies to governmental agencies as well, so that if there is a security breach, like there was one recent, several actually, in the state of California, for example, the state of California um, found out that there was a security breach of all state employees, including senators and Congress people, <laughs> and and uh, so they had to notify publicly because it was so many people in the state of California. So they are subject to our security breach law, which is state law, as opposed to what Joe is talking about, which is the Gramley-Bliley law. And in the state of California, if you violate the law and you don't disclose, you can be sued personally, okay? If you're a, a business and you do not disclose a security breach, you have a private, there's a private right of action against you. You can be sued privately, whereas Gramley-Bliley is not uh, doesn't have a private right of action and neither does HIPAA but you can have your attorney general sue or you can have some of the federal agencies fine the the business so i just want to clarify that there is legal liability but in the state of california there is actually a private right of action so you can be sued by an individual whereas you can only be sued under gramlich bliley by a federal agency or an attorney general's office. And it's good. California has been on the forefront of a lot of the privacy legislation. So they have additional laws that go above and beyond the federal laws, as you right. say. But many states don't. Right. And, uh, you know, that's a hole that needs to be, really needs to be filled. Well, here, here's a couple other broadly applicable laws. And these ones are under the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act of 2003, which is also called the FACT Act. And I just want to mention two different rules or laws that are strongly directed at preventing identity theft, and they apply to nearly every business. The first is the disposal rule, which requires proper storage and disposal of sensitive consumer information, whether that information is on paper or it's an electronic format. And it applies to everybody. It even applies to individuals who might collect other consumer information. For example, you know, if I'm going to have somebody do work on my home and I want to do a background check on them and get some information and I have sensitive consumer information from doing that, I'm obliged to properly store it, secure it, and when I dispose of that, let's say it's on paper, that I properly dispose of it by shredding it, incinerating it, or pulverizing it. The other rule... And I want to just stop you for a second and say yes, and, and what Joe is saying is so important because if you're a small business owner and you have sensitive data that is included in a consumer report, a credit report, or a background check, you have that duty. You must, even if it's like he's talking about 
even a nanny, if you do a background check or get a credit report on a nanny, again, you must shred it when you're done with it. Okay, you have to store it in a locked place, and when you get rid of it, you have to shred it or you can be sued. Okay, and, and I would interpret the law very, very broadly. There's some uh, documentation from the Federal Trade Commission that suggests that even though you may not get a background checked, that a social security number is derived from background reports, so that right. a social security number alone. Uh, on a piece of paper with a person's name is something that should be protected. So it's best to, in, it's best to interpret these laws very, very broadly, uh, and that will avoid any type of litigation, fines, things like that. And that's why I mentioned earlier that, you know, this is all about creating a culture of privacy and, and security. Right. Uh, not just complying with the laws, because sometimes if you think you're complying to the letter of the law, you may have forgotten something, and it's, it's, it's best just to have that culture of we're going to protect all of the information in our business and not just certain types of information. Um, the red flags rule requires the authentication of a customer. In other words, you want, to, you want to make sure you're really doing business with a real person and not an identity thief before a new financial or credit account is opened or before a person requests to change an existing account. And under this law, any business that bills a customer after goods or services have been delivered is considered a creditor. So again, creditor is uh, a very, very broad term under the law. And I would say that this law probably applies to upwards to 15 million businesses, many of them small, because many, many businesses do bill customers. Uh, and then, of course, you mentioned the breach notification laws, and they apply to just about every organization, there are very few exceptions, and all but five states have enacted such laws that require those organizations to notify the probable victims of an information security breach very promptly. And the last law that I'll mention is the payment card industry data security standard, because that applies to any business that accepts credit cards. And that law is really intended to protect credit card information. Uh, so it requires appropriate security measures by merchants that handle and process credit cards, regardless of the size of the business uh, or the quantity of transactions that, that they make. And then you've mentioned, of course, all the state laws. And I don't know how many privacy laws you have in California, but Tons. I know in Wisconsin <laughs> we have 25 different privacy laws, one of which even protects pet health care information. Yeah, on their... Yeah, is that the the chip that you're talking about, or what? Oh, it actually uh, it, it actually protects things like X-rays. I mean, somebody can't just walk into a veterinary clinic and say, uh, "I'd like to get the X-rays or the medical records for Joe Campana's dog." They would have to have my written permission to do that. Uh, so that's interesting. Okay, that's good. I think I don't know if we have something like that. I haven't really looked into that one. But what are some of the key documents? Let's let's talk. We have a, a few minutes left, and I want to get to some of the the meat here because we're talking with Joe Campana, who is the author of Privacy Makeover: The Essential Guide to Best Practices. So let's talk about some of the key documents that every business should have as a part of their Privacy Best Practices program. Well. 
every business needs to conduct a risk assessment. They need to determine where the risks are in their business. What are the identity theft risks, the privacy risks, information security risks? They need to document that risk assessment and tell how, how they address the various risks. You know, for example, if you have employees that are carrying around laptops that have social security numbers and account information, that's a pretty high risk and that has to be addressed. A good way of addressing it would be through encryption. And so you identify that risk, you tell how you're addressing the risk. So that's one document. Every organization has to have a privacy and information security policy. Uh, Businesses that have a website should have a privacy notice, and, or it's also called a privacy statement. But I like to differentiate and say it's not a privacy policy. A privacy policy is a, a completely different document and in more of an internal document. It's not the same thing that you typically would post on a, on a website. Um, the, uh, we need documentation that employees have been educated and trained. And there's two types of uh, education. One is I call just general awareness, and then there's actually that training of the people who are actually handling the sensitive information, training how they handle that information, how they should protect the information. And you know, uh, Joe, when you were talking about uh, privacy policy, that privacy policy, and you're talking about you know the training, the people who work in an organization have to understand the privacy policy. They have to be trained. They have to be um, tested to make sure that they know it. Because even if some attorney or outside counsel or outside privacy officer or even inside privacy officer writes this wonderful privacy policy, if the people are not following that policy, if they don't understand the reason for it, if they don't care for it, if, if there isn't any enforcement of those policies and those procedures, then the people down who are implementing these policies may be totally screwing up. That's right. And, and I, like to, I like to have that as part of the employee education where you review the policy, maybe not in grueling detail, but at least in principle. This section says this. This section tells us to do this. And then also have the employees read it and sign off on it uh, so that they know what's in it. Uh, you have to have this formal appointment of your privacy officer. You need to do periodic audits. And I talked about corrective actions a little bit earlier. You know, if somebody's terminated, you need to, 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 to document that they were terminated because they violated the privacy policy or they were disciplined or they had a warning because they left something on their desk they shouldn't have left on their desk. And they need to change all of their passwords after somebody leaves. <laughs> Because so many times we see that people are terminated and they had access to certain documents through the Internet or, or through uh, computerized information, and they have to be locked out. And even the keys to the building. Exactly. <laughs> Joe, I have to tell you that we are really out of time. Do you believe that? It goes. We could it went have quickly. It went really quickly. Well, we will definitely send people to your website at jcampana.com. And have them look at your wonderful new book, Privacy Makeover, The Essential Guide to Best Practices. So thank you for joining us. You're quite welcome. Thank okay. you for having me. And we will talk again, and you say a big hello to my old Badger town, all right? I will. Okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join me every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And then join us at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, 
listen to archived interviews, download podcasts. Please write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Give us some feedback. We'd love it. And we wish you the very best of privacy protection. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.